Noe Maori mai a voice Pacific Waves e RNZ Pacific no le Koroi Hawkins. Coming up... For many Morobians, it's a very unfortunate day. You know, many people are really stunned. Papua New Guineans mourn the death of the Deputy Prime Minister, Sam Basil. Uh, those things are, are not discussed in Guam. They're just sort of announced. Call for more consultation on the deployment of U.S. military assets in Guam. Because of my physical disability and being nonverbal, it wasn't easy to apply for attending the drama and dance courses. And Pacifica artists living with disabilities are empowered to chart their own course. There's tension in Morobe province in Papua New Guinea as Papua New Guineans mourn the death of Deputy Prime Minister Sam Basil, who died of injuries sustained in a car crash on Wednesday night. Throughout the day on Thursday, crowds of mourners had been gathering at two locations in Ley, outside of the Basil family residence and at a local funeral home where his body was being held. Senior Papua New Guinean journalist Scott Wyde says Sam Basil was a man of the people who traversed the length and breadth of his electorate, helping so many people from all walks of life. Mr Wyde says this has made it very difficult for local authorities to officially declare a house cry for the national leader. I spoke with Scott Wyde earlier on, not long after he'd visited Sam Basil's family home, and began by asking him how police investigations were going. Um, yes, there's an investigation underway. Uh, the police commissioner, David Manning, issued the statement late yesterday, uh, going towards one o'clock. That statement was released uh, and also posted on social media. So uh, official, officially, there's an investigation ongoing. Um, his body was brought to the lay funeral home at about 3 a.m. in the morning. Uh, and th- this morning, there's a there was a crowd, there's still a crowd at, in front of his house at the waterfront. Uh, there's a crowd that's built up there, and there's another crowd outside the funeral home. We're, we're, we're actually headed there um, to see what's happening there. Um, maybe just talking a bit about the man himself. Um, uh, wh- what can you tell us about what Sam Basil meant to the people of his electorate and to PNG and, and a bit about his career? You know, I was I was saying earlier uh, to another colleague that, you know, politicians are disliked the world over, but, uh, you know, on, on the human side, Sam was pretty much loved by his people. I mean, they, they liked his work. They, they liked the fact that he engaged with people. Uh, and he's also a very high achiever and a very hard worker uh, as, a, as a person. So his work ethic is pretty solid. So he's been involved in various, various programs. You know, in Papua New Guinea, you can't just be a politician and not be a, a, someone who delivers services. So he's been like that. And the, one of the reasons for that is because the systems don't really work in Papua New Guinea, you know, the service delivery systems. So because of that, he's pretty much been thrust into that role where he's had to go out and lead the charge, basically, and and be uh, the leader in trying to also deliver services for his people. And uh, I guess that's what kind of endeared him as a person to the people in his electorate. What kind of services? Um, Do you want to give some examples? Yeah, you know, one of the examples is, uh, you know, he's experimented with uh, building roads with concrete in some of the most difficult places to get to in his in his area, um, provided solar power kits, uh, rural power kits to houses. Um, he's initiated uh, 
eye care programs where he's brought people from some of the most remote parts of the district, Wow and Bololo, to have them treated and have their cataracts removed. So it's, you know, very elderly people bringing them out of rural locations and then giving them that new opportunity to see again, basically. Uh, it's just one of the many, many programs that he's initiated and uh, tried to do over the years. And he's been doing that for the last 15 years. So all of that put together is what's given him that status in, in his own community. And the other thing that stands out for him is that uh, he's walked physically, you know, on foot throughout his whole electorate. And he makes it a point to travel to all those locations where there's zero road access and no airstrips. So it, it's he's kind of a, a standout leader, stand, a standout young leader who's built up that reputation over the last 15 years. Uh, definitely. i uh, definitely seeing all of that love coming from the the posts and messages on social media um, reacting to his to his death. As for his political career, it's been quite a, a meteoric rise. Would you would you describe it as such? He is a mover and a, he was a mover and a shaker. I mean, very influential Morabe politician. So, I mean, if you look at it, Morabe is an important um, province politically because it has the biggest number of MPs going into parliament. So there are 10 MPs. It's the only province that has 10 MPs. So it's it's an influential uh, province in terms of the, the makeup of, of government, in, in the formation of government. So he was he, he was instrumental in the revival of Pangu Party, which, you know, it, as you know, is the party that led Papua New Guinea into independence. Uh, and it was neglected for so many years. He brought it back, revived it, um, took that party into the elections and won eight seats in Morobe. So it's a, you know, very sizable chunk of an achievement in his political career. Um, he's held various senior portfolios, and the latest one was uh, Deputy Prime Minister. Um, in the last election towards the formation of government, he, he was basically that figure that almost kind of determined where the government went uh, who, or who got Prime Minister. Uh, so he's very, very influential. Now, in terms of uh, basically a, a career sh- cut short, as, as, as you say, he's a, a young leader, um, uh, uh, probably um, uh, from what I'm reading, Morobe's best chance at a shot at having a prime minister from Morobe. Um, wh- what could yes. he have achieved, or what what is what was his trajectory? I guess going into the elections and and uh, on this such a day, like I, I understand the writs are to be issued this week as well. Yeah, it, it's you know for many Morobians, it's a very unfortunate day. You know, many people are really stunned and and. You know, I I was standing in front of this house uh, just a few minutes ago and a lot of women were crying, you know, they're very distraught, very uh, upset that this has happened. Many of the men are just, you know, they're stunned, as I said, you know, unable to express themselves. They're they're talking about it, but uh, not really articulating it as well as the women. Um, the, the I met two police officers who you, you could tell they had just been crying uh, and putting on a straight face, trying to keep the crowd together and all that. So it's it's affected different people in so many different ways. Uh, and in terms of his, you know, the political career cut short, he's already proven, he already proved himself that he was a force to be reckoned with, you know, reviving uh, a party that was in the doldrums, basically. Um, and 
bringing it to life and then taking that party and you know showing that it's a force to be reckoned with in the elections and then uh, giving up the party leadership and going on and creating his own again uh, and you know creating a brand new party just putting in new candidates just ready to take on on that uh, new challenge again so yeah huge huge loss for more of it huge huge loss for Papua New Guinea thank you Thomas Wantok um, uh, probably a little bit early at this stage, but do we know anything about um, uh, uh, what funeral arrangements are both and also uh, uh, mourning and custom law, place law, PNG, in terms of how this funeral is likely to go? Yeah, it, it's really difficult to say where the house cry will be because, uh, you know, everyone has a claim to it. Uh, so it's it's a very touchy subject right now as to to say where the house cry will be. Even even authorities are you know very careful what to say and what to do right now. Um, in terms of the funeral arrangements, from what I gathered, uh, there should be a post mortem in the next 24, 36 hours uh, because of the issue of writs and the nomination period and all the everything that's happening. It's likely to be a very quick process uh, and the PM might say something today or tomorrow, uh, most likely today, uh, and there might be a delegation from Port Moresby or something. Um, that, that part I'm yet to confirm, but it's likely to happen that way. Uh, I saw the, the police commissioner called for calm. You mentioned quite a tense situation. What what are the... Where, where is the tension coming from and um, what are the concerns? Uh, it, it's not uh, tension, I guess, in the sense that uh, you you can't really put a house cry down and say, this is where we're going to meet uh, to give our tributes for Sam Basil, because there'll be another group saying, this is, we, we also have a claim to this person. Uh, he's ours as well. So it's, you know, we, we have to balance all that out. On Monday, the Guam Daily Post reported the U.S. Department of Defense is moving military assets to new areas on the island to beef up potential advances in security threats from China and North Korea. The Joint Region Marianas Commander, Rear Admiral Benjamin Nicholson, says the exercise is all part of the process as Guam tries to figure out how the best way it can put together the systems to protect the island and protect the region. But a former politician and a member of the Pacific Elders Voice Group, Robert Underwood, says there haven't been sufficient consultations about putting a new missile defence system on the island. Dr Underwood, who is a former member of the US Congress representing Guam, told RNZ Pacific the announcement by Rear Admiral Nicholson telling citizens not to be alarmed seeing increased military activity on the island is a cause for concern. He spoke to our regional correspondent, Kelvin Anthony. Uh, those things are are not discussed in Guam. They're just sort of announced. It's not like the freely associated states, uh, which are independent nations. Uh, United States wants to do something in Palau. They go over and they talk to the people, the leaders of Palau, and they ask for permission. Guam's case, it's merely an announcement. And in that, and the, this is a very interesting uh, 
public relations. Well, I don't know whether it's public relations, or maybe that's too unkind, but communication strategy that has been adopted by the uh, U.S. military is to talk about these areas as not just defending their military assets, but as part of homeland defense. So the question is, is uh, Guam part of the U.S. homeland? It certainly is a territory of the United States. And is it seen as part of the homeland in the same way that maybe an attack on Seattle or Los Angeles would be seen as an attack on the homeland? And what does that mean? Now I've heard even some references that the homeland includes the freely associated state. And I don't know whether that's partially a communication strategy or whether they are are being uh, sincere in that, because that sets up a different dynamic to see Palau as part of the homeland or or as uh, the Federated States as part of the homeland. I'm sure that if that was actively debated in the U.S. Congress, I'm not sure that 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 would be a slam dunk uh, for uh, including them in homeland defense. Rear Admiral uh, Nicholson is also asking uh, Guamanians not to be alarmed seeing all the military movements on the island. Do you agree with that sentiment or should they be concerned about what's what's happening? Well, people should be concerned. I don't know if they should be alarmed. But when any anybody tells you don't be alarmed, there's a bunch of uh, policemen and ambulances outside your house, but don't be alarmed. It's cause for some concern. I just found that a curious way of... Uh, expressing the presence of the military. Of course, in addition to the missile defense projects, which are billions of dollars and which attract a lot of attention, particularly from contractors, of course, there's the Marines who will be going in and out through the uh, process. They say the movement of the military assets is a response to studies conducted by the DOD, which is exploring options to beef up Guam's missile defense to have a 360-degree capability to external threats. So is that something that is, in your view, necessary or needed for Guam? I'm not sure that it's, uh, you know, it, the whole, the, the, it's a basis on what is the threat to Guam. And is, is it really a threat to Guam or a threat to the military facilities out there? And what is the military doing about it? So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different things that they're doing. Uh, one is, uh, you know, beefing up the missile defense. The other is putting in the, the Marines. And the other is is uh, extending uh, their reach to nearby islands so that there's, in effect, a kind of dispersal effect of the uh, military uh, capabilities. Uh, We'll see how that goes. But again, the language is very all-encompassing. It makes it sound like there's some kind of immediate threat. If I said to you, we need a 360-degree defense and that I have a missile defense that I'm going to put in place that's going to be, you know, protect you from everything the question is is really is, is that what's really going on and and there hasn't been a sufficient uh, conversation or discussion about that I think uh, a lot of people still need some convincing. I think most people on Guam are obviously uh, favorable to the military so there's not a great popular, a sentiment against the military, but a lot of people are certainly questioning uh, what is going on. Now, John Hill, the director of the Military Defense Agency, has said that the military will do everything uh, to deliver the new suite of missile defense systems by 2026. So what is the message uh, the MDA director trying to send by stating this? 
Obviously, uh, the message is not maybe not to Guam so much. Maybe it's to potential adversaries. And it's also a message that they're going to spend billions of dollars on missile defense and that there's going to be a lot of attention drawn in by uh, various contractors. And so this is a major uh, investment by the uh, U.S. military. And uh, whether that investment actually benefits Guam economically, not likely, and not much, on whether it benefits Guam in terms of protection, the question always has to be asked, protection from what? Who are the adversaries? Now, you are part of the Pacific Elders Voice Group also, who have been at the forefront in the past few weeks contributing to regional debate regarding the militarization of the region. So are these the kinds of activities that you as leaders are concerned about in the region? The Pacific elders, you know, just want to add another a level of conversation to this and to present the Pacific Island point of view. What is the major security threat? How does What are the security threats that are seen by the United States? And what is the security threat being seen by perhaps Australia and, and in the South Pacific? And what is the real existential threat to Pacific Islands and Pacific Islanders? And it's pretty obvious that those don't match up. And the elders, have stepped forward to simply point that out. And so part of their conversation, I'm sure over time, although I don't speak for them, I'm just one of them, over time they're going to address the uh, geostrategic issues which the islands find themselves in. Two New Zealand-based Pacifica artists are co-leading a new arts initiative called the Toa Residency to increase support for Pacifica living with disabilities who want to enter the arts industry. Musician Pati Umanga and interdisciplinary artist Pelena Keke Brown say the residency will give the community a chance to collaborate digitally and allow them to take control of their identity. Susanna Suisuiki has the story. Standing up for the rights of others runs in Pati's blood. His grandfather, Pao Manga, was heavily involved in the Mao movement that led Samoa to gain its independence in 1962. In 2005, Pati suffered an accident that left him paralysed. However, through his activism and musical skills, Pati continues to advocate for the disability community. Pati hopes the residency will remove barriers to the Pacifica disability community participating in the art space. He says the arts allows the community to have control of their narrative. And I've been really using music as, as a way of, I guess, forming our own narratives as disabled artists, as disabled musicians. Because I know that for so long, other people have taken our stories and used it for themselves. And, and I'm really passionate about us owning our own narratives. And through the arts, we can do that. Inspired by other Pacifica artists while growing up, Belena Keke Brown's work combines art writing and performance. Her career has been recognised internationally, having spent six years living and performing in New York. Because of the pandemic, Belena Keke is now back in New Zealand and says she is honoured to co-lead the tour residency. She hopes that plenty of Pacifica artists living with disabilities take up the opportunity. One way that I kind of figured out how to be an artist was I looked at other artists that I wanted to be like or have careers like them and I would look at the opportunities that they had done and then went 
through that way kind of followed their footsteps and be like oh that person applied for this residency and they're also interested in similar things and so then I would apply for that residency so see what else is out there and the internet is a really great resource and there's a lot of disabled artists making really cool art and so I think looking at what other people are doing and trying to connect with them is a really great place to start. When it comes to their development, Bati says the disabled community has had to rely on others within the health and social sector to make decisions on their behalf for far too long. Give the opportunity for our disabled people to lead the change rather than being led. You know, for so long, we have other people doing things for us, to us, um, and they try and do it with us. But in the end, it's us leading the change that will let you provide the real point of difference. Lucy Fiverr is an award-winning performing artist who has won several awards for her outstanding contribution to the art sector. Lucy also feels that most care providers often overlook the disabled community's decision-making capabilities. She says the arts community have enabled her to thrive as a leader. Lucy says the start of her arts journey wasn't an easy one, but today she is a highly respected performer and sits on the artistic direction panel at a leading professional performance company, Touch Compass. Since I was younger, I imagined myself performing on stage. I unfortunately didn't get the chance to have any formal training opportunities for me because of my physical disability and being nonverbal. It wasn't easy to apply for attending the drama and dance courses. So I think it's good to get some disability leadership so that would help the company to bring new opportunities for those who want to go into the art sector. I must say that I'm grateful for to have a good career as a Pacific professional artist and I am enjoying my new role on the artistic direction panel. Vinaka Lucy, that report from Susana Suisuiki wrapping up today's show. There is Pacific Waves, AE, Formus Maulalum. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts, and if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. More than Manda.